be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, we'll be taking a stroll along the woodland path with naturalist author Windrock Packard. We'll be listening out for the early signs of May's arrival and imagining the magical creatures that might lurk around the hidden ponds. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath and settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. The Promise of May The first touch of the rose-grey morning air brought my senses suspicion of two new delights, one the more sensuously pleasing, to be sought, the other to be hoped for. It was easy to hope for things of such a morning, for there come gracious days in the very passing of April that presage all the seventh heavens of early June. At such times, the pasture people bestir themselves and no longer march sedately towards the full life of summer, but begin to riot and caper forward. The old Greek myth of fauns dancing on new greenswood is not less than fact. By May Day, the shrubs are caracol. I suspect even the Cassandra of wiggling its toes under the morose morass and thought it may not outwardly prance, but it puts on the white of new buds as if at last it were coming out of mourning. By sunrise, the riot of the robin symphony had become a fuge, and there was some chance to hear the other birds. I had hoped for a soloist who should certainly be here. The coming of the earlier bird migrants from the south is sometimes delayed by storms, or forwarded by pleasant weather, but those which come now are almost sure to appear at a definite date. There are always Baltimore Orioles in the elms about my house on the morning of the 8th day of May. No one has yet seen one on the 7th, though the neighbourhood takes an interest in the matter and keeps a careful watch. It is a matter of 25 years since observations began and not yet has the date failed. If on that morning I do not see the flash of an Oriole's orange, yellow, 
and black among the young leaves of the apple tree, and hear that musical whistle, I shall think something has gone dreadfully wrong with the return tickets from Nicaragua. Of the brown thrush, I am not quite so sure. He rarely calls on me. Instead, I have to seek him out on the first few days of his arrival. He likes the sprout land best, and the flash of Rufus Brown that you get from him as he flits away among the scrub oaks might well be the colour of a fox's brush, yet there is no mistaking his sunrise solo. It is quite the most sonorously musical bird of early spring, and I have heard it often on the 25th of April. I dare say it has always been here as early as that, though some years I have failed of the concert room and so of the singer. Always he is here by May Day. This morning, his rich contralto rang from a birch tip in the pasture where he, or some thrush like him, has sung each May Day morning for I do not know how many years. I listened in vain for the Chewick, though he too is due. Like the brown thrush, he is a thicket-hunting bird, following soon on the trail of the fox sparrow, cultivating the underbrush by claw as he does. There is no rest for the weary brown leaves of last year, though they may take passage on the march winds to the inmost recesses of the greenbriar tangle of the pasture corners. Through March and early April, the fox sparrow harries them, and they have hardly settled with a sigh to a brief nap in his trail before the brown thrush and the chewick are at them with bill and toenail, and these are here for the summer. About a week later, generally on the very 6th of May, easy-going Mr. Catbird will appear with great pretense of bustle. He is a thicket bird too, but unlike the chewick and the brown thrush, his farming is all folderal. He simply potters round on their trail, gleaning. Whatever the thicket bird name is for Ruth, that is his. There are sweeter singers in the spring woodland than the brown thrush, but I know of none whose rich voice carries so far, and this one's rang in my ears through all my wanderings till the sun was high and the dew was well dried off the bushes. Now and then I must needs forget him, and even my quest, in my joy over the fresh beauties that the shrubs were putting on, seemingly every moment. It is something to look at an olive-brown pasture cedar, which has been as demure as a nun all winter and spring, and see it suddenly in bloom from head to foot, as if before your very eyes, coming out all sun-clad in cloth of gold. It is no illusion of the sun's rays or the scintillation of the morning dew, but a rich glow of gold out of the sturdy heart of the plant itself. Last October, I had thought nothing could make a cedar more beautiful than the rich embroidery of blue beading on cloth of olive, which these native children of the pasture world donned for winter wear. Now I know their May robes to be lovelier. No doubt they are days in coming out, these tiny blossoms of the pasture cedar, 
Yet they always reached the point where I noticed them in a flash. One moment they are somber and sedate. The next they are all dipped in sunshine and dimple with a loveliness which is the dearer because it is so unexpected. You might think it just the foliage of the plant taking on a livelier tint with the coming of glad weather, and there is a change there, but that is only from brown to green. In the severe cold of the winter, the leaves seem to suffer a decomposition in the chlorophyll which gives them their green tint and put on a winter garb of brownish hue. But with the coming of the warm days, the chlorophyll is reformed and the brown is rapidly giving place to green when this new transformation flashes on the scene. Right out of the little green leaf scales grow thousands of tiny golden brown spikes with a dozen golden mushroom caps ranged in whirls of four about them. They're not more than an eighth of an inch long, these pollen-bearing spikes, which will presently loosen upon the wind tiny balloons bearing pollen grains to float down the field to the even more rudimentary pistolate flowers. But they are big enough to change the gloom of rocky hillsides to a glow of delight seemingly in an hour. You have but to look about you if you will visit the pasture cedars on May Day, and you may see the place light up with the change. There is no fragrance to these blossoms, other than the resinous delight that the leaves themselves distill at the caress of warm sun. It was no odour of the pasture cedars which had given an object to my walk. The lark is not a native of Massachusetts, but it will grow here fairly well if you plant it, and there are long rows of these trees by the roadside on the way to the pasture. These are all coming forth in the fragile beauty of new ideas. The larch is the mugwump among conifers, dallying irresolutely between two parties, born a dyed-in-the-wool Republican it is yet of late years leaning towards democracy, so it votes with the conifers on cones and the deciduous trees on leaves. Sometimes I cut a larch limb to see if this year's one isn't turning endogenous, and am never sure but the fruit for the new season will turn out to be acorns instead of cones. You never can be sure in what way these independents will surprise you. It is lucky the trees do not have the Australian ballot on what their year's output shall be. If they did, there would be no possibility of predicting what would be the larch crop. As might be expected, the larches are not virile trees, but have a slender beauty which is quite effeminate. Just now, their this year's leaves are a third grown, and are very lovely in their feathery softness. But lovelier yet are the young larch cones growing along the branches, Cecile among the young green of the leaves, translucent, deep rose-pink cameos of cones that remind you of an etherealized tiny pineapple, a strawberry, and a stiff blossom carved in coral all in one. After all, I am convinced that the larches may do as they please about their leaves 
vote with the deciduous trees if they do wish, and flout their coniferous ancestry if they will, provided they continue to grow yearly on May 1st, these most delectable of cones. No blossom of the year can show greater beauty. Baffled in my search for the origin of the sensuous odour which had lured me and which seemed still to drift hither and thither on the variable air, I got the canoe and paddled over along shore to the cove that I know, a new moon-shaped hiding place behind a barrier reef of rough rocks, further screened by brittle willows that struggled forward year after year, waist-deep in water bravely endeavouring to be trees. They almost succeed, too, in that their trunks tower a modest twenty feet, and some of their limbs remain on throughout the year. So brittle are the slender twigs, however, that the least touch seems to take them from parent tree, and as I push my canoe between them in a favourable channel of the reef, I collect an armful in it in brushing by. It is a wonder that the March gales have left any. Past the barrier and afloat on the slender, placid crescent, I found a new moon world with a life of its own. Rough waves may roll outside, but along the gentlest undulations crinkle the reflection on the mirror surface within. The winds may blow, but rarely a flaw strikes in far enough to ruffle the water. Here. With the sun on my back, I might sit quietly, and soon the normal life of the place, if at first disturbed by my entrance, would go on. Yet here is no drowsy silence, such as will fill the cove with sleep in August. Passing April may leave things quiet, but they are awake. The first sound which disturbed this quiet was a kaplunk at my side followed by the grating of a turtle shell over rough rock and a second plunge. Two spotted turtles that had been sunning themselves on a rock at my very elbow as I glided in thus became submarines and slipped silently away to Ooze Harbour between two sheltered rocks at the bottom. These two had been contemplating nature with the sun on their backs, as I planned to and had been loath to leave such pleasant employment. I think the turtle's brain may work quickly, but his motions are as slow as those of the federal government. Round about me were the mangrove-like buttonball bushes, showing no signs of green, and the brown heads of hardback and meadow-sweet blossoms of last year bent over their own reflections in the water. Here were grey and brown sackcloth and ash. Did not the little cove know that Lent was long past? Yes, for here, too, were the maples scattering their red blossoms all along the surface, and as I looked again, I saw the sage green of young willow leaves just pushing along the yellow bark of the little brittle shoots. Under the brown heads of the Speria formentosa and the Salicifolia were vivid leaves putting forth, and just as the pasture cedars seemed to jump into blossom before my eyes, so the little crescent cove seemed to garb itself in green as I looked. 
underwater too, were all kinds of succulent young herbs just coming up, like water parsnips whose root leaves start in the pond bottom, but which, with the receding waters of summer, will grow rank in the mud of the margin. A leopard frog sounded his call from the roots of last year's reed, a gentle draw which has been compared to the sound produced by tearing stout cotton cloth, and perhaps that is the nearest one can get to characterising it, though the sound is a far more mellow and soothing rattle than that. The hylas have ceased their peeping, and the wood frogs no longer croak. They have laid their eggs in the warming waters and gone up into the woods. Hitched to a twig, a foot beneath the surface, I found a jelly-like mass as big as my two fists, which contained a thousand or so eggs of the green frog, Rana clamatans, and no doubt those of the hylas and wood frogs were to be found nearby. The New Moon Cove is a famous frog rendezvous, and a month from now, the night there will be clamorous with the cries of many species. You would never believe there were so many varieties till you begin to hunt for them by ear. A pair of robins came and inspected their last year's nest in a willow over the water, and I saw there a leftover kingbirds still holding the space, though the kingbirds themselves will not be back to claim it before the 5th or 6th of May. A silent black and white creeper slipped up and down all in and about the shoreward bushes, gleaning stealthily and persistently, always with a watchful eye out for possible danger. This watchfulness did not cease when the bird finished hunting and settled down for a noonday nap. It chose for this a spot on the black and white angle of a red alder shrub, where it would look exactly like a knot on the wood. Then it fluffed down into a fat ball of feathers, and for a half hour seemed to snooze, motionless, except for its head, that every few seconds turned and looked this way and that. It was a noonday nap, but it was sleeping with both eyes open. The kingfisher, always an example of nervous energy, flittered back and forth outside the willow barrier, springing his rattle in short, vigorous calls. Once he fell into the water with a splash and came out again with a young white perch in his mouth. By and by, he gave an extra shout and went off over the hill and was gone for an hour. Then two came back and the air was vivid with friendly staccato calls. But there seemed to be a disagreement later, for after a little, the first bird was alone again. Then he began to fly back and forth, high over the cove, till his white throat seemed a sister to the young moon, paper white in the zenith. All the kingfisher's calls before that had been brief, but now, as he flew, he clattered like an alarm clock, the kind that begins at ghostly hours and continues without intermission till you finally get up in despair and throw it out the window. His cry would begin with his leaving the point beyond the cove on one side, continue without a break as he swung high, and only cease when he had dropped to earth again on the other side. 
Where he got the wind for this continuous vaudeville, I cannot say. I've never heard a kingfisher call so long without an interval before, but I take it to have been a far cry sent out for that vanished mate. Perhaps she answered finally, for he betook himself off after a little. I hope to a rendezvous. While I listened in the silence for the returning call of the kingfisher, a little shore wind came over my shoulder and brought to me that same delicious, sensuous perfume that I had noticed in the early morning, only where it had then been as slender as a hope, it was now rich and full with the joy of fulfilment. I looked back in some wonder at the rocky march behind the cove, but now I saw farther than the alder and maples that fringed its edge. Just as the golden glow of the cedars in the upland pasture had seemed to come all of a sudden, as if turned up by the pressure of a button which made electrical connections and set the machinery of fantasy at work, so the inner swamp suddenly grew all sun-stricken with yellow of the spicebush bloom. Bare twigs bore clusters of it everywhere, and its intoxicating odour thrilled all my senses with rich dreams of June. So all this day of passing April, the sun shone in the placid heart of the little cove with the full fervour of summer. The leopard frog throated his dreamy yawn from the bog, and the rich, soft perfume of the spice bush seemed to wrap all the senses in longing that thrilled and disquieted even while it lulled. There is a call to Vagabondia in the odour of the spice bush, that traveller of the wilder wood, which finds ready echo in the hearts of us all. If it bloomed the year round, there would be no cities. While I breathed in the witchery to the full extent, there fell from the sky above a gentle call, a single bird note out of the blue that made me sit up straight and look eagerly. A swift wing stabbed the air above the treetops, and the note sounded nearer. Quivet, quivet, it said in the liquid gentleness, and the first barn swallow of the season slipped down towards the pond and skimmed the surface in graceful flight. May is welcome. She could be ushered in by no sweeter music than the gentle call of the barn swallow, nor could she send before her more dignified couriers than the glowing pasture cedars, or more richly sensuous odours than that of the spice bush, which makes all the swamps yellow with sunshine in her honour. Bog Bogles a spirit of mystery always broods over the great bog of Ponkapog Pond. Only occasionally does man disturb its quaking, sinking surface with his foot. You may wade all about on it, even to the edge where the billowing moss yields to the scarcely less stable pond surface, but to do so in safety you must know it intimately, else you will go down below, suddenly, to become a nodule in the peat and perhaps be dug up intact a thousand years from now and put in a museum. Hence man rather shuns the bog, and has become, or perhaps I might rather say, has remained, 
the home of all sorts of shy creatures that shun man. It would not be surprising if the little people that the Ponkapog natives knew so well, the Pukwidgees, which were their fairies, the little Manitus, which were guardian spirits, and the fearsome folk, the native bogies, still linger here, though the natives are long gone. This morning, in the lonesomest spot, I thought I heard speech of them all, and though various creatures appeared later and claimed the voices, it is to be believed that these merely came out of the tall grass to go on bailing for them. At this time of year, you may reach this lonesomest spot by boat, if you will take a light one, with smooth flat bottom, and push valiantly through winding passages where you may not row, and boldly ride over grassy surfaces that yield beneath you. It is a different bog edge from that of last summer, a new world. The Nasea, which made wickets of bog hopple all about, is hardly to be seen, and you will wonder at the absence of the millions of serried stems of pickerel weed that held the outer defence of the halberts and made them blue with flaunting banners of the bog's advance guard. If you will look over the boat's side as you glide through the open water near the edge, you will see these, lying in heaps, blades pointing bravely to seaward, almost a half-fathom deep, slain by the winter's cold, indeed, but their bodies a bulwark on which younger warriors will stand firmly in the skirmish line this year. Already the slender spears of these prick upwards out of the grey tangle at the bottom, and it will not be long before they stab the surface, eager for the accolade of the field marshal sun. In the little channels up which you glide, tiny tides flow back and forth, driven, no doubt, by the undulations of the waves in the open pond, and here through the dark depths the brownish-green clusters of pointed peat moss roll along like Russian tumbleweeds driven across the Dakotas by prairie winds to grow again in new soil. On either side are island clumps of meadow grass, and in the shallows you may see, as carefully planted as if by some landscape gardener of the pond bottom, most wonderfully beautiful fairy gardens of young water lily leaves. Out of the brown ooze at varied, dignified distances apart spring the slender, erect stems, some only a few inches long, others longer, till a precocious few tickle the surface with the upper rim of the rounded leaf. These leaves are set at quaint angles that give the garden a perky, Alice in Wonderland effect. The Welsh rabbit and the mock turtle might well come down these garden paths hand in hand, or the walrus and the carpenter sit beneath the flat shade of these dado decoration leaves and swap poems. But, after all, the wonder of it is not the quaint beauty of the arrangement, but the bewildering richness of the colouring of these leaves. Only the faintest suggestion of greenness is in them. Instead, they glow with a velvety crimson-maroon in varying shades, a colour inexpressibly soft and rich. The blood-red of last year's cranberries that form a floating bead edge to the bog in many places 
is more vivid, but not so rich. The lilies of next year will be lovely indeed, but never so sumptuously beautiful or so full of quaint delight. At the end of the waterway, you will come to a barrier of Cassandra, which blocks your further passage and half surrounds you with a low, irregular hedge. I fear I have misnamed the Cassandra. I thought it dour and morose, but that was in late April. Now it is early May, and by some trick of the bog Pugwegis, the gloom of its still clinging last year's leaves is lightened into a soft sage green that is prim indeed, but lovely in its primness, while all underneath these leaves, in festoons along the arching stems, are tiny white blossoms that are like ropes of dripping pearls. Grim and morose indeed, the Cassandra is like a gentle, pure-souled girl of the elder Puritans, arrayed for her coming-out party, her primness of garb only enhancing the beauty of soul that shines through it and finds visible expression in the pearls. And already lovers buzz about her. Their cheerful hum is like the sound of soft stringed instruments fanned by the warm breeze in this fairy-peopled land of loneliness. Here I see my first bumblebee of the season, seemingly less dunderheaded out here among the wild blooms than he will be later in the white clover of the lawn. Perhaps the prim and definite arrangement of the Cassandra blossoms, hung so close in long strings that he has a straight road to follow, helps keep his wits about him. Here are honeybees aplenty, adding the clarinet to his bassoon, and many a wild bee too, bringing the scintillation of iridescent throcks or wing, and his own peculiar pitch to the symphony. I dare say the hymenopatrists know each bee by ear as well as sight. In this fairy land of bog tangle and hilliards, that I had thought all through with their song for the year, piked in chorus as each cloud slipped over the sun, and the leopard frog yawned throatily, dreamily, all about in the full sunshine. The hotter it was, the more they liked it, and in the brightest parts of the day, they cut up the yawns into brief words and phrases which made a most language-like gabble. Of course I could not see this peace congress of leopard frogs, and can only prove that it sounded like them. It may very well have been the Pukwajis talking over my presence, and wondering if white men were now coming to oust them from their last stronghold in the bog, as they have driven them and the once more visible natives from the rough hills and sandy plains about the pond. Indeed, as I sat quiet, hour after hour, in the miniature wilderness, I came to hear many a strange, unclassified sound that, for all I know, may have been fay or frog, banshee or bird. I began to get glints of sunlight reflecting from grassy islands all about me. It was as if some very human folk had held high carnival here the night before, and sown the dry spots with empty black bottles. But a second look showed me these to be spotted turtles, sitting up above the water level, 
each with his head held up as if he wished especially to get the warmth of the sun on his throat. On such a sunny day, one might well envy the turtle for having all his bones on the outside. It is easy for him to let the spring sunshine into his very marrow. The turtle, in spite of the canticle which, bubbling over with the enthusiastic poetry of spring, declares that the voice of the turtle is heard in our land, is usually reckoned dumb. The commentators have carefully announced that the turtle mentioned is the turtle dove cooing in the joy of springtime. That may be, but I do not see how they know, for the turtle, denied a voice by naturalists and scriptural commentators alike, nevertheless has one, and a song of its own. A turtle suddenly jolted will give a quaint little squeak as he yanks himself back into his shell. That is common enough, but this day there were two, sitting up on nearby tussocks that piped a musical little song of spring, just a soft trill that was eminently frog-like but distinct. I heard it and tried at first to make it a trill of hylas, but it was more of a trill and different in quality. Try as I would, I could but locate this quaint little song in the throats of the two turtles. I carefully scared one off his perch, and one trill ceased. I scared the other, and both voices were silent. Though here and there, in the marsh, I could hear others. It may have been the puckwidgies playing ventriloquial tricks on me from the shade of the swamp cedars just beyond and laughing in their beaded sleeves at the joke. But if it was not they, I am convinced that my turtles sang, and that Solomon not only knew exactly what he was talking about, but meant what he said. While I was listening to the two turtles and wondering about them, I kept hearing over among the white cedars raucous profanity of the most outrageous sort. Bad words snarled in throaty squawks came oftener and oftener, till by the time the turtles had gone down into oblivion beneath the bog roots, the most villainous language from at least two squawkers gave evidence that a low-bred row was going on. I could distinguish accusation and recrimination till it sounded like a family quarrel between drunken bog bogles. Then there was the sound of blows, and with a wild shriek of a most reckless word, a bittern flapped out, whirled round once or twice as if undecided where to go, then dropped in the grass down the bog away. Here he turned his black, stake-like head this way and that for a moment, then pulled it down out of sight. I had known the bittern was misanthropic but I had never before realized that it was so ill-tempered and profane. I am positive he was beating his wife, and the whole affair sounded like a case of too much bog whiskey. For an hour, there was no sight or sound of this bittern, though uncouth conversation seemed to be going on still in the tangle whence he flew, but I heard no more profanity yet out of the heart of the bog, curious sounds came floating at intervals, 
sounds which often I had difficulty in getting any known creature to go bail for. I do not mean the ordinary bird voices, though the air was full of these. It seems as if all the small migrants made this a port of call or a refuge and paid for their safety with music. Warblers trilled their varied tones from the cedars or the thickets of Cassandra shrubs, some coming boldly near, others giving sign of their presence only by the glint of a wing or the shaking of a twig, others still invisible but vocal. Thrush and catbird, song sparrow and chipping sparrow, chickadee and creeper, all helped to fill the air with sound, but it was not to these I listened. It was rather to obscure whinings and grumblings out of the deep heart of the bog. Goblin talk, very likely, that seemed to grow louder and come nearer. Then after a little, I heard a splashing, and out into the clear space of grassy shallows came a splendid great muskrat, followed by another just as large. In the middle of this tawny ground, the two faced each other, and after a moment, sparring began. It was hardly a scientific fight. They batted and clawed, butted and scratched and bit, whining like eager dogs, and now and then yelping with pain. But it was effective. In a very few minutes, one had had enough and turned and fled, ploughing a straight furrow through the shallows to a plunge in a deep hole. The victor followed a few yards, then, as if convinced that the retreat was real, turned and went proudly back, probably to the lady who was the cause of all this trouble. Muskrats are such gentle creatures that I was amazed to see this happen, but affairs of the heart are serious, even in the depths of the bog. I lay a part of the bog bogle talk which still went on in the eerie depths behind the green of the cedars to the other muskrats. It does not seem as if they could have been to blame for it all. Then I remembered the vanished bittern and began to work my boat towards the part of the bog where he disappeared. When I found him, he was simply sulking on a tree branch. I think he felt so bad about his behaviour and profanity that his usual wariness was at fault, for I was almost upon him before he saw me. It may have been drunken stupor, but I like to believe it was remorse. When he did see me, his dismay was ludicrous. He almost fell over himself in getting into the air, and he flapped back towards the spot where the quarrel had gone on with wild squawks that said, Help! Help! as plainly as any language could. Out from among the cedars, in answer to these frenzied appeals, came the other bittern, and then another. I watched the three flapping down the bog, and saw them light together at a safe distance. Then I knew the cause of all the trouble in the bittern family. The bog world, like the pasture world and the deep wood, at this time of year, is full of blissful lovemaking but it is also full of heart-rendering jealousies and fights to the finish. No wonder the Pukwajis and the Bog Bogles are full of talk and excitement back there. There is enough food for gossip. 
Sitting quietly in the boat in this new part of the bog, I had a weird feeling of being grimly watched by I could not tell what. I have read tales of travellers in African jungles who felt the eyes of a lurking boa constrictor resting balefully on them when the creature itself was concealed. It was something like that, and I looked about rather uneasily. Probably the bog voices were getting on my nerves, and it was time to go home. Then I glanced over one side of the boat and very nearly jumped over the other, for there were the two grim eyes in a great horny head as big as my two fists looking up at me. I had been amusing myself with imagining that I had heard the little people of the bog, but here was the great dragon, the very devil himself, sunning his black hulk on a fairy acre of bog grass. At its further end, I saw his tail, as large as my forearm at the base, tapering with alligator-like corrugations to its tip. I saw his great webbed feet, as large as my hand and furnished with claws. I saw his thick neck, and that was all of him in sight. The rest was concealed within a huge mound of black, plated, horny shell that was fourteen inches from side to side and sixteen inches from front to back. These are measurements which I took after I decided that he did not intend to eat me right away. Perhaps not at all. The Calidra serpentina, the snapping turtle, or the alligator snapper, as he is sometimes called, and with reason, for except for his casing of shell, for except for his casing of shell, he is very like an alligator, is not uncommon in the bog, but I had never before seen so huge or so ancient appearing a specimen. His black shell was worn grey with age and bore two deep scars where some sharp instruments, very like a spear, had been jabbed into his back. I suspect this to have been a native spear, and I fully believe that my black dragon of the bog was a well-grown turtle before the white man ever saw Ponkapog Pond. There were parallel ridges in the structure of his shell that seemed to show somewhere as if the turtle had carried some weight on his back. The natives have a legend that the world itself is held on the back of a great turtle. Very well, this is the one. I saw the marks of its friction on his great muddy black structure as I looked over him, there in the middle of the loneliest place in the bog. I might have taken him by the alligator tail and swung his seventy or eighty pounds into the boat, I suppose. Terrapin is valuable and the snapping turtle is own cousin to the terrapin. I have a fancy, though, that if he had got into the boat, I should have got out. No ordinary Ponkapog boat was likely to hold us both, and I wisely refrained. Nor did he molest me, but stood his ground, still gazing at me with that cold, critical eye. After a time, he moved on, pushing his great weight with ease over the crushed bog growth and sliding with dignity down into the muddy depths of an open channel. For myself, I turned the boat prow towards the distant landing and pushed, as he had, 
over the yielding shallows to the open pond. I had seen a hundred beauties in the lonely bog and been well initiated into its mysteries. For me, the spotted turtles had sung, the muskrat had fought a tawny, the bitterns had voiced a family quarrel, and now it was nightfall, and the big old dragon of the bog had looked me over with measuring eye. It was high time that I headed for home if I expected to get there. <laughs>